Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. OMG. Can't our favorite tennis players give us a minute to catch our breath here? First, Serena steps away from the game, which, you know, I still find devastating. Now, Roger Federer, too. It's too much to bear. Am I right or am I right? We were actually so busy today that we missed his very last match, teamed up as he was with frenemy Rafa Nadal as his doubles partner, but I don't doubt we will be crying our eyes out tomorrow when we catch up on what happened today. Alex is already threatening to watch it alone in a dark room where our kids will not see him choking back his sobs. Poor guy. Don't tell him I told you that. In other news, a Tesla owner went viral on TikTok after he posted a series of videos on issues with his Model S. Mario Zalea claims he was locked out of the car after its battery died, which would have cost him over $20,000 to fix. Apparently last year, a Finnish Tesla owner blew up his EV to protest a similar issue, which is, I think, an appropriate response. But get this, Polestar owners are in for an even bigger shock. At least, according to the site Inside EVs, after a car owner in China damaged his dual-motor, long-range Polestar 2 in an accident, and it was deemed necessary to replace the battery pack as it had been dented inward, he was told it was going to cost the dollar equivalent of $80,000 to replace the battery. The official statement from Polestar was reportedly that its batteries cost a little less than 60000 to replace, but even if this is accurate, holy moly. Very separately, venture capitalist Keith Raboy got grilled on CNBC today by reporter Dee Bosa, who was interviewing Raboy about two companies he had a hand in co-founding. Open Store, a Miami-based startup that acquires Shopify businesses from entrepreneurs, and that said this week that it's now valued at just shy of a billion dollars after a new investment in the company by Lux Capital. And Open Door, a home flipping business that went public via a SPAC in late 2020 and is now suffering losses as the market turns. In fact, its shares are down a stunning 80% this year. The two spent much of the conversation arguing about Open Door's profitability. Specifically, they disagreed that the company is in the black per generally accepted accounting principles, but Bosa was able to move the conversation along seconds before Raboy's head exploded. It is an instructive exchange that you can actually find in the newsletter, but it does also offer some insight into open store, which would seem to be out of fashion right now as people snap shut their pocketbooks. Raboy, ever the contrarian, argued, of course, that the startup's timing is perfect. And now we bring you this week's guest, Steve Case, the co-founder of America Online and the investment firm Revolution, as well as a very high profile advocate for startups and founders that are pretty much anywhere outside of major tech hubs like San Francisco, New York and L.A. We talked with Case about his newest book, The Rise of the Rest, how entrepreneurs in surprising places are building the new American dream. But first, a word from our sponsor. Take cap table management to the next level. With Morgan Stanley at work, administering and managing equity compensation has never been easier with the ShareWorks platform. Our equity solutions are designed to help companies and employees make the most out of their equity compensation plan. 
Morgan Stanley at Work can help companies navigate tax and risk globally, conduct shareholder liquidity events, and educate employees. Discover why over 3,000 companies use Morgan Stanley at Work to manage their equity from startup through IPO. Visit morganstanley.com slash strictlyvc to learn more. And now, here's our interview with Steve Case. Apologies for the audio quality. It's not the best. Steve, great to see you again. It's been, what, two years since we spoke? Yeah, sounds about that. Yeah, a lot, a lot has uh, transpired. <laughs> exactly. It's been an interesting two years on many fronts. I know. Well, I guess I'd give you time to write another book, though, which is terrific. I guess the pandemic downtime gives people a chance to take a step back. And one of the things I did decide to do was write this book because it's reflected in the last decade of traveling around the country, meeting entrepreneurs, seeing what's happening in these rising startup cities. It was just a story that needed to be told. It was a remarkable experience. And so I did use some of that pandemic downtime to put pen to paper and try to share my experiences and some of these great entrepreneurial stories with the world via a book. I have read that you traveled pre-pandemic 11,000 miles on this ongoing bus trip dating back to 2014, visited 43 cities. Is that right? And, and also, are you back on the road or have you bookended that chapter? Yeah, well, you're right. It started about eight years ago, a little over 10 years ago. I was asked by President Obama to chair an initiative called Startup America Partnership, and that got me focused on regional entrepreneurship, focused on this imbalance that we've talked about before in terms of how venture capital is allocated, 75% of the venture capital dollars going to just three states, things like that. And then that led to let's hit the road and see what's happening firsthand in different cities. And to be honest, when we started, we didn't know quite what we were getting into, but just found it, it really just unbelievable what's happening in these cities. And the more we visited cities, the more we wanted to visit more cities. And it ended up being eight tours over about the five or six years. And then we did obviously have to stop when the pandemic hit. And we have not yet restarted in terms of physical tours, but we are spending a lot of time traveling around the country and the Rise of Rest team, which is now about a dozen people focused just on Rise of the Rest, visited dozens of cities over the last six months. So we're back on the road, but not yet back on the bus. That's great. Steve, I think maybe the second to last guest on this podcast was an investor that you've probably crossed paths with before, Chris Olson of Drive Capital. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, he and Mark, we've talked periodically with them as well. And it was interesting. Chris was saying a couple of years ago, he'd said, we've planted the flag, we've laid the groundwork, we've educated landlords on how startups are a little bit different, maybe shorter term leasing agreements, et cetera, et cetera. And we really expect fully that other VCs will materialize here. They should at least. And talking to him again a couple of weeks ago, he said, actually, that's not happened. And in fact, the opposite has happened. People first jumped onto Zoom and then they retreated back to investing in California. His point was that their LPs are going to berate them if they miss the company in Silicon Valley, whereas they're not necessarily expected to find the next big company in Columbus. I just wonder, is that something that you're seeing or concerns you? I think it's a mix. Chris is right. There's certainly some venture capitalists based in places like Silicon Valley that for most of the last decade were really exclusively focused on investing in that region that over the last couple of years, because of the convenience of essentially Zoom pitch meetings, did start connecting with entrepreneurial places and that did lead to some investments. And no doubt some will pull back and focus on their backyard, if you will. 
I, I, think, I do think a number of people have now realized some of the most remarkable companies are being birthed in places around the country. And so while some may hunker down in a more difficult environment and focus more on their existing investments, I do believe we hit a tipping point during the, the pandemic and that will result in an acceleration of more capital flowing to more cities and more entrepreneurs, obviously, in those you know, cities. And also as a result, we're going to see even more of an acceleration of the dispersion of talent. We've talked about this in the past, but because the venture capital is so concentrated in a few places like California, New York, and Massachusetts, most people in most parts of the country, if they want to be part of the innovation economy, the tech sector, the startup world, felt they had to leave where they were to go to the coast. And it started slowing over the last five years or so. I think it was a pickup in terms of people relocating uh, during the, the pandemic. And I think the pandemic ended up being the shake the snow globe moment for society and also for a lot of families who did this reassess how they want to live and how they want to work. And I think that likely will result in a permanent dynamic. So we're, we're still pretty active with our particularly Rise Rest Seed Fund. We've now co-invested with over 300 regional venture firms. And one of the nice things about what's happened over the last decade, and we did this joint report with PitchBook late last year, 1,400 new regional venture firms have started in rising cities in the last decade. I think that bodes well for more entrepreneurs in more places being able to start and scale their companies. I think that's great. I am a little bit concerned. I'd seen a data point that I keep meaning to drill into further, that investment in the Midwest had pulled back. So I was a little bit concerned that LPs who might have been willing to spread their money around a little bit, especially considering what's happening right there and we're facing this looming recession, will be less inclined to perhaps give these funds follow-on funding. And they won't have had time, of course, to establish results. Again, not to be doom and doom. No, I think, again, I'd say the jury is out. It's, we're still in the, only been in the pandemic, seems like forever, but two and a half years. We've seen this market reset really over the last year or so. Exactly what all the dynamics are, are still a little unclear. But I think the broader macro trend is the notion that in order to participate in the startup sector, you needed to be in a few places like Silicon Valley. I think we're out of that phase, and I don't think we're going to go back to that phase. I think we're going to have a more dispersed innovation economy. And one of the key messages in the book, one of the reasons I wrote the book, is it's not just one or two or three cities that are rising up. It's actually several dozen cities that we profile in the book that are really showing remarkable momentum, in part because of some of the cost of living benefits there, in part because of some of the lifestyle benefits, but mostly because some of the industries that are getting disrupted have strong anchor partnerships in different parts of the country and companies that are close to those companies are going to be advantaged. Example is what we saw in, in uh, we invested in Chattanooga and this company called Freightwaves. They basically are focused on building a like a Bloomberg data platform for the trucking and logistics industry and are advantaged because most of the major trucking companies in America are in Chattanooga. So it's a strategic plus to be there. Or in Northwest Arkansas, a company we back called Acre Trader. The founder, actually, Carter Malloy, was in San Francisco, decided to move to Arkansas because he has built a platform to allow people to invest in farmland. And he thought, well, in order to have that be successful, I've got to build a marketplace and it's better to you know, be close to where the farmers are so I can build trust with them. So that's the dynamic that I think is accelerating based on what we've seen. And the other dynamic is we saw over the last several decades a brain drain from many parts of the country, including people who are graduating from some of our top universities in the country who then left that area to go to one of the coasts. 
And that started changing over the last five years or so in places like Pittsburgh. Some of the Carnegie Mellon graduates more were staying in town. We're also seeing rising startup cities like in Atlanta, where they have a terrific university system with Georgia Tech. One of the companies we back called Hermius is building a Mach 5 engine and working with the, the Air Force and got a big contract with them. They're based in Atlanta, partly because Atlanta happens to be a hub in terms of aerospace, but largely because Georgia Tech is, is graduating a lot of really you know, top engineers with a particular focus on that sector. So that's why I think it's more of a permanent change where these cities will continue to rise. Venture capital will, will accelerate and the, the talent flows will, will accelerate. Steve, one of the things I really like about the book is that you get a real flavor for different parts of the country and you tell stories about what's going on in different cities and what's happening with local entrepreneurs and some of the specific challenges they face. And so I love that storytelling aspect to the book. You mentioned Arkansas. What, in your view, is really the hottest area of some of the areas that you've invested in? Uh, you mentioned Indianapolis quite a bit in the book. Where has Rise of the Rest invested the most dollars? Well, we have, uh, through our uh, Rise of the Rest seed fund, 200 investments in 100 different cities. And so it's fairly broad, and we're, we're seeing momentum really in many, many cities. As you mentioned, Indianapolis is an example of a city that most people don't really know what's happening there. Again, that's part of the reason to write the book, to tell these stories. But particularly in the last decade, and even more so in the last five years, it's really developed in terms of being focused particularly around enterprise software. And some of the reasons for that is there was a 10-pole company, their exact target, that was acquired by Salesforce for $2.5 billion. At the time, they had 1,000 employees. Now, Salesforce had 2,000 employees in Indianapolis and because it's the second largest Salesforce office outside of San Francisco. And the founder of that company and many of the early employees of that company have gone on to start new companies and back new companies. And that's where we're seeing a real acceleration. One of the ones I write about in the book is this company, 120 Water, started by an ex-exact target, executive Megan Glover, who was focused on water quality after the Flint water crisis and, and really built a company to do that. So that's a great example of what's happening in, in a city like that. We also see interest in places like Richmond, Virginia. We backed a company called Temper Pack that's focused on sustainable packaging. They actually started in New York City, but decided to move to Richmond, Virginia to build out their manufacturing capabilities. And they've gone on to raise $140 million in a round led by Goldman Sachs. And so that's why this really is a broad-based phenomenon. It's not just a few places, it's a few dozen places. And that's what's, I think, encouraging what makes this, in my mind, a durable change, which is, again, not to say that Silicon Valley is going to fall. When we talk about the rise of the rest, we're really talking about other cities rising up and becoming much more important as startup cities. But I do think we hit peak Silicon Valley. I think the dynamics in Silicon Valley that have dominated the innovation economy in the last couple of decades, I think that's not going to be the case in the, in the next couple of decades. Sure, there'll be great companies started and scaling in Silicon Valley, but there'll also be great companies starting and scaling in cities all across the country. Steve, you mentioned so many really interesting companies that I didn't realize that you were I think maybe directly involved with are you an investor in Temper Pack and Acre yep. Trader and Hermes yep. and Freightways. Yeah, those are all brands that I know and recognize. Have you had any exits? I know you've been doing this for ten or so years. Have you had an IPO or an exit? We've had one of these seed companies, App Harvest, go public about a year ago. Another company based in the D.C. area, Fiscal Note, went public just a few months ago. Another company out of Kansas City called Backlot Cars that was acquired with a pretty significant exit. A company in Nebraska called Life Loop, 
and Omaha was also acquired. So yeah, there have been some exits. Obviously, when you're investing at the seed stage, you know, it usually takes a number of years to develop, but we've already seen some exits and we've already seen, I think it's seven unicorns so far. So it, it bodes well for what's happening in these places. I would ask this of anyone, but obviously the later stage market is a little bit less certain right now. I feel like early stage investors are, like to say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm totally disconnected from what's happening in public markets. I don't have to think about it right now. But obviously, a lot of these other companies that are established are going to need follow-on capital. How do you think about that? I always think of Midwestern companies or companies outside of the coast being a little bit more self-sufficient yeah. um, and growing their businesses. I wonder if you think of them as having a different exit profile. Are these more perhaps attractive to trade sales or PE type acquisitions? Well, I think it's changed because it is historically more difficult for entrepreneurs in these rise of the rest cities to raise capital. They tend to have more of a bootstrap mentality and tend to be quite a bit more capital efficient. Some of that's because their cost of operations are lower because of the city they've chosen. Obviously, in the cities we're investing in, everything costs less than the city like a San Francisco or a New York. So whatever they are able to raise can last longer. And the mentality they have really is how do you build the business with the money you have and not assume that you can always raise more money down the road and it's always going to be at a higher valuation, which is the tendency in places like Silicon Valley. But I also would say that this change is encouraging that Maybe 10 years ago, the companies in the rise of the rest city, perhaps even five years ago, were often selling themselves short, selling too early at valuations that were perhaps too modest. And we're starting to see that mentality change. We're starting to see more and more entrepreneurs really believe they can build significant, durable, independent, multi-billion dollar companies. And I think that's been an encouraging dynamic. So sometimes they choose to exit M&A transaction. But I think over the next decade, you'll see more and more of the companies in these rest cities going for it and trying to build significant value with an eye towards being public. Another dynamic that's been interesting to watch, particularly if you juxtapose it versus, say, Silicon Valley, is in these cities, the people that join these companies tend to be quite a bit more loyal. There's quite a bit less turnover Obviously, one of the challenges in Silicon Valley is because there are so many opportunities, people bounce around a lot. That makes it somewhat difficult to build a culture, particularly for younger companies. I think that also advantages these uh, rise to risk cities and the entrepreneurs building companies in those cities. And we've heard that consistently from the entrepreneurs we back that they really believe they can build a culture where people really do have the long view. They're thinking about building significant value over a decade as opposed to looking for a quick exit or if there's some little hiccup in the business, quick, just jump and ship to go across the street to some other opportunity. Steve, obviously you're finding companies that don't have as much competition as they might in Silicon Valley. How would you characterize the valuation discount that investors receive when they invest in companies in Arkansas versus Silicon Valley? It's hard to put a number on it, but there's no question the classic supply and demand. There's fewer investors looking to invest in those companies. The, the, the valuations are somewhat more moderate. Over time, we expect that would close. Certainly by the time that companies go public, that closes. Nobody says when companies go public and the perspectives, well, this company is headquartered in Omaha, so it should be at a lower valuation than if it was in San Francisco. But there is a discount, an arbitrage, particularly at the earlier stage. And that narrows as companies mature. When you get to the later stage growth rounds, it tends to be more consistent with what you see in some of the coastal markets because the growth investors are really thinking about that as a pre-IPO round. Steve, also, you mentioned everything from supersonic planes to sustainable packaging. 
What are you looking for exactly? How does somebody go into business with the Rise of the Rest Fund? Well, we have three groups, the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, Revolution Ventures, and Revolution Growth. So obviously, they operate in different ways. But given the focus right now is on the Rise of the Rest and the Seed Fund, our strategy there is to partner with regional venture capitalists. So we co-invested with over 300 different regional venture capitalists. And they lead the rounds. They take the board seat because of the velocity of investments we're making. As I said, we've made 200 investments in 100 cities over the last four or five years. We play more of a role of connecting these entrepreneurs, connecting these investors to build a essentially a rise of the rest network, which includes a lot of information share. We host summits for the investors, summits for the entrepreneurs, summits for the startup community leaders. And then we also reserve capital in that fund to double down on the most promising companies. So we think of it as a land and expand strategy. We make an initial investment under a million dollars alongside regional investors and then we put more money into the ones that are the most promising opportunities. And Steve, are you also investing in some of these new funds? We did some of that early on, but because we co-invested now with over 300, we were getting a lot of requests to be investors in those funds. We decided, at least for now, to back off on that because we wanted to build the broadest possible network and didn't want to pick some to invest in and, and, and opt not to invest in some others and have that create some angst. So early on, we were doing some of that, but in the last couple of years, we've backed off on that. Also, Steve, to ask, a, I guess, a somewhat obvious question that I'm sure you get a lot, it just feels obviously like our politics, the left and right, couldn't be farther apart. And I think as a native Ohioan that I would like to perhaps get closer to my parents, but sometimes I don't necessarily agree with the governor's decisions there. Obviously, that's an issue in some of these red states. At the same time, people are moving. The politics are becoming more and more extreme, especially with this abortion ban. How problematic do you think that is? I think it's something to keep an eye on. I think cities now recognize that historically they were competing to get companies to move. Now they're competing to get people to move. And everybody will have a different set of criteria that they prioritize things in, in, in different ways. You say this for family reasons, that you want to be closer to other family members, and that motivates a move. Maybe it's for cost of living reasons, because you can actually buy a pretty nice house for a relatively modest amount of money and the rise of the rest of the cities. It often is for some of the strategic reasons I mentioned. There's some industry expertise in that area that you want to build on. Often it's related to lifestyle choices. Maybe you like the hiking or the skiing or some other aspect. And of course, there's some states with taxes that make it more attractive. That is another thing that people factor in. And I think some people uh, will, as you say, factor in some of these social issues, including the recent Dobbs ruling. But So it may lead to some people that were thinking of moving to a place to take a step back. And I think people making these decisions should keep that in mind, that there's a broader set of issues that people should be thinking about and being aware of, whether it be the local and state leaders or others in the community, even the media, and the way they cover these issues. I think we want to avoid hyper-partisanship in the country. We have enough issues that divide the country. We want to avoid a entrepreneurial culture war. So I think that is something to watch. Now, that said, some people may, for them, it may be a decisive issue. I think the jury is out, and it will depend on some of the things that happen in the years that come. Steve, I also just wanted to ask you, as somebody who has run an international business and probably been under pressure yourself in this situation, do you think companies should take a stance? It sounds like from your answer that you don't think so. Well, I think every CEO has to decide, and some depends on which issues they want to weigh in on and which issues they think are most important to their 
key constituents, whether it be their employees or their customers or others. So I think every company has to make that decision. I also would say within the states, there's an interesting dynamic. And again, you see this even in voting patterns, that there are some states that are viewed as conservative, but have some cities that actually are quite progressive. Texas is a good example. There are many parts of Texas that are conservative, tends to skew towards voting Republican, but there are cities like in Austin that tend to have a different voting pattern and be more progressive. So after a great resignation in the last couple of years, I think we're now moving into a great resort and different people are going to be going to different places. And and it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But some of it is going to be what the mayors and governors and politicians do, but some of it also will be what the, the entrepreneurs and the CEOs of the big companies decide to do. Steve, I'm curious about your relationship with J.D. Vance. He was a manager at Rise of the Rest. I'm sure you've been asked this question before. What is your current relationship with him, and what do you think of some of the positions that he's taken? J.D. joined us probably four or five years ago, right after he came out with the Hillbilly Elegy book. And part of the reason for that is his wife, Osha, was going to be working at the Supreme Court as a clerk there for a year in Washington, D.C., and we're headquartered in Washington, D.C. So he joined us to really help launch the first Rise of the Rest Fund. But after they were in D.C. for a year, they decided to move to Ohio and continued in a role for another maybe six months or so, but ultimately decided he wanted to launch his own fund, which he did in Cincinnati. I have not talked to him since he announced last year that he was running for a I've not supported the campaign. Frankly, I've been surprised by some of the things that you've said, which are, by his own admission, inconsistent with some of the positions he took several years ago. One more political question. You said in the preface that Kurt Vonnegut said that we need a secretary of the future cabinet position. Are you interested in this position? And if not, who would you suggest if... No, I, first of all, I think the probability of them creating a new position is probably not great. There's other things that probably are more of a priority. The point I was trying to make is that as a nation, we really do need to lean in the future and have an integrated strategy around innovation and something like a Secretary of the Future would help really signal America's commitment to continue to lead, continue to be the most innovative, entrepreneurial nation. So I don't expect them to create a, a role like that. And if they did create it, I'm sure there are people that are more qualified than I to take on that role. But I'll continue to try to do what I can right now. I agreed to co-chair the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which is part of the Commerce Department, and weighing in on some of the work around industries of the future and regional hubs and things like that that obviously tie in with Rise of the Rest. But my real focus is really building revolution, backing entrepreneurs all across the country, trying to level the playing field in terms of opportunity while generating the top-tier returns. When we first launched Rise of the Rest, I thought it was almost a do-gooder effort that we're going to back these entrepreneurs in these places that don't get capital. And we said, even on day one, no, the best thing we could do is to generate terrific returns, which will really surprise some people who don't really believe it's possible for these companies to build significant value. And that would then lead to an acceleration of venture capital going to these Rise of the Rest cities. And that's still my principal focus. So just to be clear, what I'm hearing is no political aspirations, even though you are. That is correct. That is correct. Loved, a successful CEO. <laughs> no, no, but to be, I appreciate you saying that. But part of the reason I think I've been successful on policy, including even a decade ago working on the Jobs Act, the Jumpstarting Our Business Startups Act, and more recently some of the work around regional hubs, is because I'm not political. And when we're traveling around, we invite Democrats and Republicans to join us on the bus. And so everything we're doing is trying to make innovation, make entrepreneurship, make startups, make job creation 
a nonpartisan issue. And you know, I think they want to continue to have a platform to be able to do that. And that's frankly why I wrote the book. I want to tell these stories, which I think point us to a more optimistic view of the future of America in terms of what's happening in different places. I think part of our politics has been weighed down by the fact that there are some people in some places doing really well, and a lot of people in a lot of places feeling left out and left behind and struggling. And one way, not the only way, but one way to help bridge that is to back more new companies in more places that can create more jobs of the future by leading in terms of inventing the industries of the future. And I think that's important to everyone, and whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's not really a political issue. It's not really a partisan issue. Steve, one thing that I thought about when I was reading your book was the fact that you grew up in Hawaii during a very important transition when the state was transitioning from an agricultural economy to a tourist economy. And to a certain extent, it was a little bit left out as well. And then you decided to start AOL in Washington, D.C., which was hardly a hub for startups. How did you decide to start the company in Washington? Well, it was really an accident. Growing up in Hawaii, I went to college in Massachusetts and worked in Ohio for a little while, then worked in Kansas for a little while, and then moved to the Washington, D.C. area, Northern Virginia, in 1983 to join a startup that was doing something that I thought was pretty interesting. But it ended up struggling and ultimately failing. But at that point, I was there, and two of the people I met uh, and I went on to start uh, in 1985, what became America Online, AOL. So it was more of an accident. And in those early years, I write about this in the book, because I think it's part of the reason I think I'm so passionate about Rise Rest, but also I'm so optimistic about the future of Rise Rest. When we were getting started in the in late 80s in Northern Virginia, it was hard. There really was no venture capital in the area. It was really hard to get people to leave big companies to join a little struggling, fledgling company. It was hard for even to get attention of the local media. And so we kept fighting and eventually broke through. But there's no question it was more difficult. And as you mentioned, I also wrote about my experience growing up in Hawaii, which did feel like I was kind of off the radar of most of the country. We'd even get television programs a week late because this was before satellite technology existed. So RiseRest really, in my mind, started as an outgrowth of the work I was doing for the White House around Startup America. But as I was sitting down writing the book, I realized that there's a broader backstory. And it really came back to my early days growing up in Hawaii and then also the early days of AOL and the Internet in the D.C. region. I felt I should tell that story because I hoped it would inspire other entrepreneurs to start companies no matter where they are, even if it does seem like it's a little bit more of a struggle, and try to continue to encourage people to do what they can to level the playing field so the next generation of entrepreneurs really can build companies anywhere that will end up lifting up and really renewing those communities by driving job growth and, and economic growth. So you talk the talk, but you've also walked the walk. Exactly. Well, I loved it. I, loved it. I feel a certain empathy for these entrepreneurs. I think they sense that. It's a, not just me, the, the whole team we have working on this. We really are trying to champion these entrepreneurs, champion these cities, because we really do believe it's the best path to maximize the likelihood of America remaining the most innovative entrepreneurial nation and also maximize the likelihood of, as I said earlier, lifting up these communities and giving them more a sense of hope and possibility. And we do that 
backing companies where we are able to generate terrific returns. So we're proving that it is possible to generate a great venture return by backing entrepreneurs in what we call in the book of these surprising places. My hope is a decade from now, they won't be surprising places. The dozens of cities that we profile will be more obvious to people as really strong startup hubs. And some of the companies we profile will end up being some of the Fortune 500 companies of tomorrow. Are you getting a lot of help from the White House, uh, given the fact that Ron Klain, your former partner, is working very closely with Biden? Well, we're pretty careful because you know, Ron, when he left us uh, a couple of years ago to go into the White House, we you know, not asked him for any favors in terms of helping what we're doing with the revolution or Rise of Rest or any specific companies. But I've been encouraged to see some of the momentum in particularly this past few months where some of the legislation that did pass Congress and get signed into law including the CHIPS Act, included some a focus around regional hubs. Even Janet Yellen, just a couple of weeks ago, was basically talking about this need to level the playing field. Essentially, the message of Rise of Rev, Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, very passionate about this as well. Interestingly, I mentioned this in the book, she was a venture capitalist 25 years ago, focused essentially on what we now think of as Rise of the Rest, the firm she worked with called Village Ventures was trying to back entrepreneurs in surprising places. And at the time, it didn't really work. There's a whole host of reasons why it didn't work then, but it's working now. And then from there, she went on to become governor of Rhode Island, now Secretary of Commerce for the United States. But her own personal experience, not just as a venture capitalist, but as a venture capitalist backing entrepreneurs in places around the country, I think also informed her views and makes her as passionate as I am about trying to level the playing field. So we are definitely seeing some positive momentum from the administration, but it has less to do with the relationship we have with Ron Klein and more to do with some of the ideas that we've been evangelizing in a bipartisan way for a decade. That's great, Steve. I was just going to ask one question that I can't quite formulate, but I was just thinking culturally, it's interesting to me that having grown up in the Midwest, there's such a culture of, oh, no, you go first. (laughs) Everyone's so polite and self-effacing and really not terribly self-promotional. And of course, there's like a very different culture that we saw saw evolve here on the coasts. I think maybe tied in part to Y Combinator, but it just became very ubiquitous, this fake it to make it mentality. And I wonder if that impacts to this day how people think about Midwestern startups and founders versus others, if they need to get noisier in a way to sustain that attention? I think there's some of that. Even when we've been doing these bus tours and visited these 43 cities, one of my messages throughout the day when I'm meeting with different folks with different parts of the community, this really is a moment and people should focus more on on the startup world and not just think about big businesses, but think about new businesses because they're the big job creators. And I also urge them to take some of that sense of possibility from Silicon Valley. That When you hear a pitch idea in some parts of the country, people focus on why it might fail, what the risk factors are, as opposed to why it might succeed. And so being a little more optimistic, being a little less risk averse is part of the message. And the other part of the message is exactly what you're saying. You should be prouder of what you're building as a company. You should be prouder of what you collectively are building as a startup community. And you need to tell your story. A lot of entrepreneurship is around storytelling, getting people captivated, mesmerized by what you're trying to accomplish so that they want to be part of it, whether as an employee or as a customer, as an investor, whatever it might be. And I I think in the Rise of Rest City, there needs to be more of that. The stories I'm trying to tell in this book, I think, fit into that. I'm trying to evangelize 
not just in terms of what we're doing with their own rise arrest efforts, but what entrepreneurs are doing in these cities, what investors are doing in these cities, what mayors are doing in these cities, what governors are doing in these cities, what university presidents are doing in these cities, and how increasingly, because they recognize this is a moment, again, it's been building for the last decade, but clearly the pandemic was a tipping point. This is the time to really double down on building a thriving startup community, get everybody working together in a collaborative way to accomplish that. And that part of that is leaning into the future. Part of that is being a little more, you don't have to be arrogant about it, but you don't want to be too humble either. You need to tell your story with excitement and confidence. And it's not just the story of your company, it's also the story of your city. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. And I can say as a reporter, I couldn't underscore that enough. (laughs) In talking to entrepreneurs, it's everything. Steve, thank you so much. It's really a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm glad that we had this opportunity to reconnect. Everyone, pick up the book, Rise of the Rest. It's really wonderful. Well, thank you both. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening, everybody, and special thanks to this week's sponsor, Morgan Stanley at Work. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.